our next speaker is uh, Dr. Deborah Davis, and I think a lot of you have heard about her. We've been very lucky uh, to have her with us for the last few days. Uh, Dr. Davis has a pedigree that you won't um, believe. Uh, her 30-page CV is replete with uh, books and publications. She has a PhD, two masters, a bachelor's, but she's been doing this work in epidemiology and human and environmental health for 40 years. And uh, she has three books for sale here. Garth, you know, the only independent bookseller we have in Missoula, Montana, has um, brought a lot of books here today. Please go by and visit his stand. We're hoping that Deborah might be available for some book signing. Her first book was When Smoke Ran Like Water. Her second book, The Secret War on Cancer, is a must read for everyone. Her third book that just came out a few months ago, Disconnect the Truth About Cell Phones, and Garth has them all for sale. They are unbelievable. And uh, Deborah is an incredible storyteller. So when you read her books, you connect with the people like you, people like me, who have been adversely impacted. And so she's able to tell stories and lead us through the science in a way that we can understand. And we're very lucky to have her here today. She's wanted all over the world to agree to come to our little Missoula, Montana. And as she's getting ready, I do want to point out Rick Bass. Please stand up, Rick, and honor him. An incredible journalist, an incredible book writer, who um, has forsaken fame and fortune to tell the truth about the environment. A very important book we have out there is The Heart of the Monster, and it's about the tar sands and the corridor. It's a book that we all must read, and Rick is going to be here at noon for book signing. So to have a book that is signed by Rick Bass, that is a fortune. So please take advantage of that. And Deborah, are you ready? Yes. Okay, great. So a big welcoming hand to Deborah Davis. Thank you so much. Is the Sabbath. And now, of course, in our modern lives, the, the very concept of Sabbath it seems a bit foreign, particularly for those of us who are living wired existences. And I made the decision that the trade-off for me is if I use these wires from time to time, I can reach more people. But there also is a time to disconnect. There's also a time for us to center ourselves and our hearts and minds and our souls. And I want to share with you um, with the wonderful words of inspiration and faith that we heard earlier, some thoughts about what Sabbath means and about what our relationship to the earth really means, given the importance uh, of this community and what you all are, are doing here. Um, I came to Missoula, Montana because I also love the land. And I have loved some of the people here whom I've known who've done wonderful things, and I'm learning and developing new friends as well. But I, I would share with you that the Hebrew word for land is Adama, Adama. And the Hebrew word for human, for man, is Adam. So our relationship to the land in the Hebrew language would be made more clear if in English we called people earthlings. We come from and we go back to the earth and we are commanded to be stewards of the earth, 
And again, the Hebrew word for stewardship can be v'yirdu or v'yardu. And the way the word is read, it can either mean dominion or it can mean protector and steward. And obviously, those of us here today understand that we must be stewards and protectors, guardians uh, of the earth and all that's on it. And we've lost touch with that. So I stand here today as someone who enjoys the Sabbath in the traditional way, and I'm sharing this Sabbath with you because it gives me an opportunity to tell you about some of the work that I've done. Uh, I would ask you to turn off your cell phones, and I would encourage you to take them off of your body uh, if you must keep them on and on vibrate, and you'll understand why by the time I finish my talk today. <laughs> the secret history of the war on cancer, what's the secret? Well, the secret is that the war on cancer gets started fighting the disease and ignoring the things that were then known to cause it. And it's amazing how long we've been focusing on finding and treating the disease and how little effort has gone into preventing it. And that is why it's so important that this conference is taking place. And it's so important that you all recognize the, the power that you have working together to make things happen, as indeed you are making things happen. Um, the secret history of the war on cancer is based on the need to learn from our past. This is a statement really from hundreds of years ago. But if you want to make the future, Different from the past, you must study the past. You must learn from it. We are not condemned to repeat past mistakes. Trend is not destiny. Trend can be a warning. And we have to look at the trends, we have to look at the patterns to learn from them. And in fact, that's what I do as an epidemiologist. Epidemiology comes from the two Greek words meaning epi, upon, demos, the people. We learn from the patterns upon the people of disease, of health, and we learn how to improve our health and uh, prevent disease and promote it. I want to tell you a little bit about where I come from. I come from the town of Donora, Pennsylvania, on the Monongahela Valley, in a valley kind of like Missoula, with a river running through it, prone to inversions of air pollution. And this picture shows you the smoke that meant that people came to Denora because they liked the jobs and the money. And they understood that if there was smoke, it meant prosperity. And back then, people didn't think about what it meant for their lungs and their bodies. These are the hills across from the zinc plant. And these, this was the plant. This is what it looked like on a typical day. This is the cemetery where the graves washed out of the ground and they thought they hadn't been put in there firmly enough. They didn't really recognize the fact was that there, no grass would grow because of the plumes of toxic metals that rained upon all of the area. When I was a kid, we used to play kickball. And uh, kickball, I learned later, is a working class kid's sport. You play games without equipment. Nowadays, all our kids come with armor, body armor, and all sorts of things. It costs a fortune for them to play hockey and things like that. But when I was a kid, we just took um, sticks and cans and kicked them. And uh, we would be able, I might not be surprised to hear I was a tomboy. And we would, 
we would be able to slide to first, second, third, and home because there was no grass on the grounds on which we played. And I loved being able to slide down the hills because no grass grew on it. Only years later did I understand why there was no grass there. And we used to call it Denora measles because you'd go outside and you see this. This is just a typical thing that we grew up with. Of course, you'd be, have black spots all over you when you were outside for very long. And that was, again, just the Denora measles. Um, this is what it looked like at noon in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Noon, right? And people became accustomed to this, accustomed to it. This is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We had come through that tunnel, and my grandmother, who developed heart disease in her 50s, we'd always, of course, close up the windows. We somehow knew enough that you didn't want to have windows open when you're going through a tunnel. Of course, it's full of carbon monoxide and Lord knows what else. And this is what it looked like when you'd be coming out to the big city of Pittsburgh into this nice, thick, gray smog and fog. When I uh, was growing up in Denora, it was a lovely place. It was the kind of town where a three-year-old could run away from home, and every time he'd be brought back home because everybody knew who belonged to everybody else. It was a wonderful place to grow up in that regard. You could never be late, though. You could never be late because the whistles from the mill always told you what time it was when it was 7 o'clock, when it was 1 o'clock, when the shifts changed, the whistles would blow. We learned to sleep through the whistles in the middle of the night. And the trains went right through the town. Uh, I went away to school when I was young, and I came back. And I said to my mother, Mom, was there another town called Denora? Because I'd read in a book at school that a town named Denora was polluted. And I learned later that in one 24-hour period, uh, 20 people dropped dead. 20 people dropped dead from air pollution in my hometown. My mother got kind of quiet and defensive, and she said, well, you remember how we used to drive with the lights on in the afternoon? And I said, yeah. Uh, she said, well, I guess today they'd call that pollution. But back then, it was just a living. And that's just the way it was. And when children grow up, as they do in Mexico City, with brown skies, and they paint sky brown. Children in Mexico City paint the sky brown, because that's what they learned. That's what they see. That's what is normal. And we have to recognize that we don't want our children and grandchildren to become accustomed to a normal that is a polluted environment, where we say that the price of progress is the degradation of our natural par parks that the price of progress is to tolerate massive deconstruction and damage of the pristine environment that has been in some way like this for millions of years. But growing up in Denora, I had no idea. Uh, there were two things people didn't talk about. One was pollution. The other was the Holocaust. And both of them were too grim for public discussion. So there was a kind of collective denial about either of them. Later, of course, it became important to understand them. And I think that I want to pay a special salute to those who've organized this conference. Because, because of you, because of the efforts of the organizing committee here, some of whom were standing in the back, some of whom were outside, you're able to come here today and to stop the denial, to stop the denial, to understand that we can together make a difference and see that this earth will be guarded and protected by us 
and not treated as something that is ours to destroy. This is what it looked like. You see the topology of Donora, the river around the horseshoe bend. The hills were just about 600 feet higher. This is where people died, just within a half a mile of the zinc plant. Uh, I made this map with the X's on it, but the map itself was drawn by a public health expert simply to document what it looked like. And it looks kind of pretty, but this is these are barren hills. Nothing grew on lots of these areas, and it was just accepted as the way it had to be. That's my father, right there, little baby. Family owned a dry cleaning shop. Hardworking immigrants, my grandparents. My grandfather was a tailor. It might not surprise some of you to know that my, my father became a drill sergeant. And uh, he was a pretty tough guy. But at this time, this was just a few months before he survived his first almost fatal experience. That shop blew up. Explosion of benzene that they were using to clean the clothes in the basement. My grandmother had thick scars on her arms, and I never knew where they came from. They came from her rescuing her two young children from that fire. And we'll never know why my father got multiple myeloma when he was 53. At age 53, he said to me, I've lived a long life. I've lived a long life. For a man of his generation, that might have been a long life. But the reality is, not only did he survive this explosion of benzene when he was a toddler, but he went to work as a machinist, as a chemist in the steel mill. He was in the military using x-rays, doing welding, and working as a machinist. He had a lifetime of exposure to industrial hazards, as, as well as this as a baby. And he did manage to live almost seven years with his multiple myeloma and died younger than I am now. But I show you this picture as a way to say <clears throat> it's a warning for all of us now to understand. The things we did not know, we can't pretend not to know now. We now know, and we have known for some time, that benzene damages the bone marrow, the way we produce blood in our bodies. And in the secret history of the war on cancer, I tell the story of the discovery and the denial and the repression of information about the dangers of benzene. And I show you uh, that this town of Donora, this is what's left of it now, all of this area here had huge factories that were five stories high, and they're gone. All that's left is the topography. And now you can see it's green. It's green, and things are growing here. But when I was growing up, there were huge ditches and gullies, and nothing grew there at all. We now understand why that happened. And we have an obligation to see that it doesn't happen to the rest of the world. When it comes to understanding the dangers of the things that cause cancer, this is a, a stunning photograph. It's stunning on several levels. This is the first x-ray ever taken, November 8, 1895. And this x-ray image appeared in newspapers around the world within a month. Within a month, it was recognized by the inventors and by the news media as such an important development. 
long before the internet, this made it around the world by, by the mail. The woman whose ring is shown there, Frau Berta Röntgen, called this a death ray. She instinctively was concerned about it. Her bedroom was right below the laboratory where this work went on. She never had children. And her husband, Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen, is credited with discovering the invention of x-rays. But it was instinctively understood that this could be dangerous by some people at the time it was discovered. In fact, Clarence Daly worked with Thomas Edison doing research on x-rays. And he did that research starting within a year of the invention of x-rays. People would hold x-ray parties in salons in Japan, in Tokyo, in Paris, and they'd stand in front of the machines and see their bodies move, right? There were those who said, wait a minute, what are we doing? And within a few years, it was apparent, Clarence Daly ultimately died of radiation poisoning. Thomas Edison refused to ever have an x-ray himself after. Madame Curie, two-time Nobel laureate for her work with radiation, her notebooks, her notebooks were too hot to handle. They were so radioactive. She and her husband, with whom she shared one Nobel, developed radiation-induced sickness. She died of a form of what we now understand to be leukemia, induced by her research. So the dangers of high doses of radiation were known almost from the time it was discovered. And yet, we have ignored that fact until very recently, that the, and I'm going to share with you now the American College of Radiology's warnings about this. The secret history of the war on cancer reveals that in 1936, the world's leading scientists already understood these things caused cancer. Hormones clearly can increase the risk of cancer, and that was known then. X-rays, sunlight, coal tars, benzene. Benzene was understood to be toxic to the bone marrow in the 19th century, in the 19th century, cobalt uranium mining dust. Mining was understood to be very dangerous, not only physically dangerous, it still is one of the most dangerous professions in the world, as is farming, but also that the dust themselves could cause crippling lung diseases of varying sorts, some of which we now know were, in fact, early cases of lung cancer that were not diagnosed as cancer. These are stunning images taken from <clears throat> this book that I used in The Secret History of the War on Cancer. And these pictures were drawn by the laboratory workers of Angel Honorio Rofo in Buenos Aires. He had the Institute for Tobacco Research in 1930. In 1930, the dangers of tobacco were understood in the scientific community in many different nations in Japan, in Buenos Aires, in Germany. And I tell the story in The Secret History of the War on Cancer that the first case control study to document that lung cancer was increased by tobacco did not occur in 1955 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, as is commonly reported by the American Cancer Society today. No, it occurred in 1939 in Germany as a result of the Nazi Institute for Research on Tobacco. 
And this is one of these inconvenient truths that we prefer to ignore. Because what it tells us is that when it comes to information about the causes of cancer, who is the source of that information is as important as what the information has told us. And there has been a willing suspension of disbelief, a rejection of data if it's inconvenient. And whether the topic is global warming, or cancer in the environment, or cell phones and health, the burden of proof on those who present evidence of concern, of harm, of danger, is very, very high when you are dealing with highly profitable industries. And that situation has become worse over time, um, as, as you will see in my remaining remarks. The interesting thing about these drawings, these tumors growing out of the heads of rats, is that the researchers doing this work also noted that the younger the rats when they were exposed, and if they added not just sunlight, but sunlight and coal tar, the faster the tumors would grow. So this rediscovery of the vulnerability of the young to carcinogens, to endocrine disruptors, there's nothing new about this. It's common sense. Isn't that why we try to take better care of our babies, at least until they're born? Now, this is another part of the chapter of the secret history of the war on cancer that is not widely known. And that is the very close connection that the American Cancer Society had with the tobacco industry. In 1954, this charming man left his position as the director of the American Cancer Society to become the head of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Tobacco Industry Research Council. And in that position, he dispensed millions of dollars throughout the world to some of the top scientists at Harvard, at Princeton, at Yale, at Royal College, at London, all over the world. And that work fueled scientific doubt, created uncertainty, manufactured questions in the public mind. And there were legitimate scientific questions about the nature of tobacco and its impact on the body. There still are. We still do not understand exactly why it is that early smoking increases the risk of breast cancer in young women and may not have an, an effect on the risk of breast cancer in older women. We still do not understand the relationship of smoking to things like Parkinson's, where it might even be protective. There are important research questions still about tobacco and health. But the existence of uncertainty, the existence of uncertainty has been used by the tobacco industry and many other industries, as I will make clear in the remainder of my talk today. The existence of that uncertainty has been used like a cross to the vampire. We are uncertain, and therefore, let's do nothing, and let's continue as we are. This is part of the advertising campaigns that made it attractive for women to smoke. Reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. You'll never miss sweets that make you fat. That was the commercial, right? In fact, this capitalized on the well-known, nearly universal interest of women in being slim and trim. And of course, the sugar industry uh, fought back with ads about how sugar was good for you. And they said tobacco could be bad for you. <laughs> 
These ads appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association in the 1960s. Now, the thing about these ads that's really interesting is that there were major amounts of, of smokers in medical community. Surgical conventions into the 1960s were full of smoke, full of smoke. Remember, 1964, the Surgeon General's report comes out recommending that uh, people continue to stop smoking as much, saying that smoking was bad for you. Now, my contention, and I show this in the secret history of the war on cancer, is that we could have taken action against smoking in the 1950s. The science was there. What was not there was the political will. The addiction to tobacco for many people is physiological. It still is. Something like close to half of those who smoke today have some form of mental health problem. Almost half of those who smoke today, for them, smoking is a form of self-medication for psychiatric issues. And many of them are lower class, fighting other problems of life as well. But back then, it was actually argued by doctors that smoking could be good for you. And there was a very interesting um, um, phenomenon that happened. The filtered cigarettes were, were first touted as being really protective. Micronite filters, they were going to protect you. Because it was acknowledged by the tobacco industry, well, we can't really deny that tobacco is bad for you, so let's put a filter on it. In fact, we now know that the, these filters worked really well. They took the taste away, and some of them took the nicotine away. And as a result, they changed the nature of the filters so that they looked like they filtered, but didn't really get out the nicotine which you needed for the addictive properties. Um, the hope for the war on cancer, I want you to look at the date of this. Fresh hope on cancer, May 5th, 1958. Right? The man who sent me this, that was his aunt. They literally burned a donut hole through her body in order to wipe out the cervical cancer that had start spread. Literally. There were patients who had that much radiation burn that it went right, it went right through her. She was a young woman. I document in my book that this death and many others could have been avoided. Because the pap smear, which does save lives, because it detects changes in the cervix that occur early enough that if you remove those changes, cancer does not develop. It's one of the real public health successes, the pap smear. The pap smear was actually invented in the 1920s. It was shown to save lives in 1942, but it was not put into use until the late 1950s. And as a result, millions of women died unnecessarily from cervix cancer. What were the reasons for the delay? Well, I'm going to show you some of the consequences and I'll talk about the reasons in a moment. This is the level of cervix cancer in these areas, Finland, Puerto Rico, Canada, in the 1960s or this baseline year. And this is the incidence in the 1980s. And you see in all cases it's dropped by between 50% and more, right? The implementation of the pap smear saved lives. You see it. It's right here. But look at this. Not in England and Scotland. 
The pap smear was not actually implemented in England and Scotland until the 1990s because, and there's amazing discussions in my book, the British thought women would get hysterical if you started to test them like this, and it would be a tremendous waste of money, and they didn't believe it would work. They didn't believe the data. Now, those of us of religious faith understand that belief can be very powerful. Faith gets us through crises. It allows people with cancer to live well and sometimes to live much longer and better than anyone would ever have imagined. Faith is very important, but faith does not have a role in science. I trust in God, but all others have to provide data. <laughs> and in this situation, the refusal of the British medical establishment to accept the data was a big part of the problem. In the United States, the delays in implementing the pap smear were, in fact, due to the fact that there was a serious discussion at the highest levels of the American Cancer Society that if you put the pap smear into implementation, you would lead to socialized medicine because it meant tests would be done and slides would be sent out of doctor's offices to be read by women who were not doctors, and you would be ruining the quality of medicine and socializing it because no longer would the doctor be the king, and usually it was the king, of the, of the medical system because you would be giving power away to people who could read pathology slides. And that would lead to socialism in medicine. Now, it's interesting, for those of you interested in healthcare reform, that the term socialism in medicine has never been used by socialists. <laughs> the term was always used as a, as a kind of a red herring by those who were concerned about the ability to control as much as possible what was going on in, in medical practice. But these numbers, these aren't just numbers. In public health, we say that these statistics are human beings with the tears removed. That's what these numbers are. These numbers are real, live people whose lives were lost, who went through terrible, disfiguring, and sometimes fatal disease because of the refusal of the medical system to accept the facts that are presented that I show you here today. Now, when the National Cancer Act was passed in 1971, President Nixon was in a very difficult position. Um, they were fighting the war in Vietnam. It wasn't going very well, so he decided to launch two wars. One was the war on drugs. The other was the war on cancer. I don't think either of them has been especially successful for different reasons. There's a wonderful section of, of where there's a debate between Nixon and Ted Kennedy, which one of them hated cancer more. But the fact is, the National Cancer Act says we're having war on cancer, and it ignores the causes of cancer known at the time. It ignores tobacco. It ignores asbestos. It ignores hormones. It ignores the inappropriate use of diagnostic radiation. And instead, we fight the wrong war with the wrong weapons, focusing solely on the disease and ignoring the things that were then known to cause it at that time. One of the examples that in the book that's just amazing of what we did, we spent millions of dollars in the United States government of taxpayers' money to develop a safe cigarette. And the guy leading that effort was a four-pack-a-day smoker. 
He was the director of the National Cancer Institute throughout the 1960s. Remember, Surgeon General's report had come out saying that smoking caused cancer, and you had people spending government money making a safe cigarette, including one of the first Americans to show the link between tobacco and cancer, Ernst Winder, a colorful character who I don't have time to talk about here, but if you look him up in the book, you'll get he's really quite a hoot. So this cartoon from 1977 indicated that some people, including, of course, Herb Block, understood it would be a lot easier to cure cancer than it would be to prevent it, because if you prevented it, you'd be dealing with the industries, the chemical industries, the food and drug industries. And by the way, I really urge you to take a look at the wonderful selection of books that have been provided to you here by your local bookseller. There's a marvelous collection of work that has been done to document the importance of looking at prevention here. This um, is a figure that I make available, and all of the information we have produced here is, will, is part of our Global Commons activity for the Environmental Health Trust, the nonprofit that I've set up now. To make it clear that we know tobacco causes cancer, we need to start to ask about smokestacks, whether it's the diesel exhaust that's rolling through your area right now with those huge three-story high vehicles, or the smokestacks from the coal that's burning, or the smoke coming out of your wood-burning stove. Many of the same pollutants that are found in tobacco smoke occur in smokestacks and in vehicle exhaust. And if we can make the public understand that more clearly, we can work together to make a cleaner and safer and healthier environment. When it comes to understanding environmental causes of disease, we have three different types of evidence. We've got wildlife and case studies, such as the work on the Bitterroot Valley, the deer from your area here that have shown up with tremendous defects in their reproductive systems. We have experimental studies under controlled conditions in toxicology. And we have human studies shown here with my politically correct blue people. <laughs> the problem that we face, and this is particularly acute with cell phone research, and I want to be very clear with you about this today, is that the entire debate about the causes of cancer has been framed of as, do we have enough proof of human harm? Do we have statistically significant numbers of sick or dead people who we can be sure that that gun fired that bullet into that organ to cause that cancer? And as uh, someone who has spent most of my career as an epidemiologist, I'm here to tell you that relying on epidemiology to determine public policy is wrong, because it means we are waiting for the body count. And we must do a better job of preventing harm by looking at in information that we get from wildlife and toxicology in order to understand the risks, control them, and reduce them. If we insist on proof of human harm, in the case of cell phones and health, we will be condemning our grandchildren to global epidemics of neurodegenerative disease and possibly brain cancer. And that is why I am no longer a full-time academic. I am a full-time public health nonprofit advocate working on this issue, working with mayors across this nation and across the world to give people the right to know about the things they can do to protect themselves. We have to rely on models because we can't always wait. And in the case of cancer, waiting means condemning people to enormous risks. Now, every compound that we know causes cancer in animals, 
because we studied it under experimental conditions. Also produces it in, um, I'm sorry, every compound known to cause cancer in humans also produces it in animals when adequately studied. Let me be clear. We have not that much data on experimental data on cancer, but where we have it and where we have data on human causes like asbestos, like benzene, like vinyl chloride, like hormone replacement therapy, we also have it in animals. And as a result, we must treat experimental information as an indication of human risk. Now, there will be some exceptions, but we need to understand. We need to listen to what the animals are telling us. Epidemiologic studies show us that most disease is not inherited. That is to say, for breast cancer, only one in 10 cases occurs in a woman who is born with a defect that she inherited from her mother or her father. One in 10 cases. That means nine out of 10 women who get breast cancer were born with healthy genes, and then they get the disease. For Parkinson's disease, 85% of it is not inherited. And for heart disease, 90%. Keep this in mind. The world of genetic research is exciting, but it doesn't explain most of disease. The, <laughs> the reason why the environment is a cause of cancer is shown by these data. If you're an adopted child, your risk of developing cancer mirrors that of the family in which you grow up, not the one to which you were born. Fewer than half of identical twins get the same cancer. And we know that workers have higher rates, particularly women who work in certain professions have higher rates of breast cancer. Patterns of cancer remain mostly unexplained and understudied. And that's why it is important that we continue epidemiologic research. We need to do the research, but we have to understand its context. Epidemiology confirms the past. It doesn't tell you about the future. Epidemiology documents, when it's well done, past exposures in order that we can learn how to make the future better. But we should not ever insist on epidemiologic proof before taking preventive policies. As an example, a stunning example of why we know the importance of the environment, these are taken from two identical twins. Remember, monozygotic twins, they come from one egg that splits into two at conception. At fertilization, you get this one egg. It splits into two parts. It's as close to a clone as we have in human nature, right? These identical twins, this fluorescence color tells you the uh, oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes and patterns of methylation. But the important thing to see here is that they look close to identical at age three. Look at the top and bottom ones, almost identical. At age 50, the top and the bottom don't even look like they're related to each other. This is very powerful evidence that genes give us the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. It's the environment interaction with our genes that is important. And the exciting field of epigenetics is now telling us that you can even have cancer develop without direct mutation. It can affect the ability of repair processes it's to occur. This is very powerful experimental work developed in the Scandinavian countries. Now, I'm going to briefly just mention some of the uses of asbestos because you will be seeing that very powerful film that's been done and hearing from a wonderful panel today. But just to understand, asbestos is not banned in the United States today. These are some of the uses 
that continue, some of the uses where asbestos is unfortunately forever. Once it's out there, it's, it, it's hard to take it back. It is unfortunately a natural experiment that we've been conducting on ourselves. These are some of the diseases that have been confirmed because epidemiologists have confirmed them in people from asbestos exposure, and they range from lung cancer to ovarian cancer to the relatively rare and crippling cancer called mes mesothelioma. The deadly toll of asbestos, which can take 40 years before it's evident, 40 to 50 years, is evident in the fact that we now have one in three people with mesothelioma who have never been known to work with asbestos. And we believe that mesothelioma is uniquely caused by asbestos exposure. So that's telling us that there are non-commercial exposures to asbestos. In 1983, one of the first reports I worked on at the US National Academy of Sciences, where I was the founding director of the board on environmental studies and toxicology, was on the non-occupational risks of exposure to asbestos, 1983. In that report, we warned that this would happen. I don't want to be right on the issue of cell phones and health. If it takes 25 years, I won't be alive when we confirm that danger. We have to have learned something from this history. We have to learn from the past so that we don't repeat those mistakes. What we have now with asbestos, with what we have now with the tragedy of Libby, Montana, is clear proof that we should have listened earlier, that we should have understood pollutants don't stay within factories. And right now, some of you in this area have asbestos in your attics, and you should leave it alone unless you need to go there, unless you have any reason to think it's friable, that is to say, flaking, in which case you must call for inspectors to come in with moon suits and all that goes with it to inspect and to take care of it for you. Because just getting your Christmas lights out of your attic can put you at risk of a crippling disease 40 years later. I'm going to skip over these in the interest of time, but just to give you some images of, this is Google Maps. Sarnia, Canada is an area with the highest concentration of factories. No asbestos mining, but some of the highest levels of asbestos ever recorded in that community because they have so much industrial production and petrochemical refinery. Five times more mesothelioma with the highest levels of asbestos ever recorded outside of a mine. That is to say, industrial manufacturing can lead to a lot of pollution that you're not fully aware of. Pipe insulation, in this case, in many cases. This is an example of a woman who developed an asbestos-related disease from being a hairdresser. Who, took, who brushed the hair of people who worked with asbestos. The clubbing in her fingers, those long fingers, that's a sign of pulmonary insufficiency. Her lungs are not getting enough oxygen to her body, and for reasons I can't fully explain, there's a deformity in the finger called clubbing that occurs. This, these are just a stunning series of pictures of people working with asbestos in Brazil and India. And you can see the lack of protection. Asbestos has fibers that are 50 times smaller than a human hair. So if you are working with asbestos in bags like this, and, and you can't even see it's in the air, it can get through your skin into your body. 
These are the typical ways that it's, it's transported, roofing cement in Brazil. And once it's there, it's very difficult. If it's intact, if it's in siding, if it's in material that's absolutely encapsulated, leave it alone. But if it's in the thin, friable insulation, it needs to be inspected and may need to be remediated. These are some of the worst examples. That's decaying as best. You can see that that stuff's just falling apart. Broken asbestos sheets and roofs is a common sight in India. And right now, the Canadians are exporting asbestos death to India. 30% of all the asbestos in India comes from Canada. And there's a movement of the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Public Health Association, the World Health Organization, even the World Bank is calling for this to stop. You can see there's no protection here. And, and there you can see the friable, decaying materials. The global ban on asbestos has been called for for um, uh, close to 10 years now. And the reason it has not succeeded is simply the economic power of a small group of people. In Canada, and unfortunately, the governments of Russia and China, Iran, governments that I think we don't want to be associated with in many ways, are advocating and continuing to produce asbestos. This is a woman who lost three sisters and both her parents to mesothelioma, and her only exposure was as a child playing in the attic with zonalite insulation, which may be in your homes now. 30 million US homes are insulated with zonalite containing tremolite asbestos fibers. And EPA tried under Christy Todd Whitman, and you will hear more about this, to ban asbestos, to at least inform people about this. And you can find this if you know how to look for it on EPA's website, but most people don't know how to do that. The point is the residential risks, the non-occupational risks to asbestos are a 15-fold increased risk of mesothelioma compared to others. And that's what we warned about in 1983. And that's why I wrote my book, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. And that's why I wrote my new book, Disconnect, because I don't want to see the same things happen here. And we should have learned from the past so that we do not continue to live out the same pattern of death and disease. And only when we have enough of it do we finally act to reduce it. Yet another woman who died at age 26. And again, her only exposure was walking past a contaminated work site to school and playing there. Now, you may be surprised to see him here, but I just want to share with you an example of how strange the world of toxic chemicals has been. Donald Rumsfeld was hired to be the CEO of Searle Manufacturing Company uh, after his first stint as defense secretary. Now, he was not hired for his expertise in pharmaceuticals. He was hired for his, ex his access to power. And right after Ronald Reagan was sworn in, Within five days, this company filed for approval of aspartame. Every scientific group that had ever reviewed the evidence on aspartame prior to that had said, it looks dangerous. We don't have enough data. Go back and do more research. We can't say that it's safe. It looks like it could be a problem. Every single group of scientists ever reviewing the data on aspartame had concluded that. Searle put forward an application for approval of aspartame 
without any new data. You understand, no new scientific data were provided, none. Approval was granted within five months. This is what you need to look at. Studies published recently have shown that prenatal exposure to aspartame, and aspartame is NutraSweet. Aspartame is one of the most, was one of the most widely used artificial sweeteners. All right, thank you for asking. Um, and this study of the US uh, was done by one of the world's leading cancer researchers, and what it shows is this is the amount of tumors found with prenatal exposure to aspartame. And then if you let the animals live out their full lifetimes, you see an even greater growth in the tumors that occurs if you let them live more than two years. Why is this important? Because most of us don't die when we're 60 anymore. And the animal model for research has been to, to sacrifice to kill animals at two years. If you let them live out their natural lifetime, many more tumors will occur when they get older. And this is showing you, if you did prenatal exposure, you see an increased risk. How many hundreds of millions of women who are pregnant are using aspartame? There's more than 1,000 approved uses of NutraSweet and aspartame today. You don't even know it's on dental floss. Now, I'm not telling you dental floss is causing cancer. In fact, it prevents other problems. But just as an example of how widely distributed this product is, and the fact that with postnatal exposure, you don't even see any significant increase. The white line is the control animal. There's not much of a big difference here, but after the animals live out their natural lifetime, you see that the animals who are exposed postnatally have twice as many tumors from aspartame. And of course, the prenatal is, is even much higher. And these levels of exposure here, 2,000 parts per million, 400 parts per million, that's equivalent to two yogurts, two light and lively yogurts, and four or five pieces of gum a day. Now, there's a big debate about this. I'll tell you the dirty secret about aspartame. The women who were running this lab study all stopped eating aspartame when they got these results, didn't talk to one another, they just stopped using it. Within two months, they'd all lost 10 pounds. Aspartame is an appetite stimulant. That's the, it's a stimulant. If you want to lose weight, the best way to lose weight is to eat less and exercise more and find out whether you have, like many people, intolerances to lactose and gluten. That's the best way to lose weight. Eat less and exercise more. And eating artificial sweeteners, unless you are diabetic, which is a different category, artificial sweeteners are appetite stimulants. Now, where we go on all of this, where I am, I am arguing that we need, to, at this point, we're outgunned and outmanned on all of these issues, and we need to come up with a truth and reconciliation process on toxic hazards. Toxics regulation does not work. I'm here as one of the people who tried to implement the Toxic Substances Control Act in 1976 at EPA. Um, I guess, you know, it, it's um, interesting. I, I recognize when George introduces me, I have been around a while. <laughs> and I have to tell you that what we tried to do for toxics didn't work. We call it actually the Toxic Substances Conversation Act because we spent a lot of time talking about toxics and not doing that much. 
The South African model for truth and reconciliation, which is quite astonishing, is that punishment does not work, particularly when the entire country is guilty in some way or other. That Nuremberg actually created the delusion of justice because it punished some key people, but really, you can't punish a society. And what happened with World War II was not unique. There were leaders, but there were millions of followers. When an entire society is at fault, a systemic approach is needed to forgive and rebuild. And I need not remind this group, with the wonderful opening statements you heard today, that things can be legal and immoral. And the way we treated Native Americans was legal and immoral. Th slavery was legal and immoral. The first implementation of hazardous waste control in this country was legal and immoral because it was legal to bury waste in the ground without any liners or protection, sometimes for, as you know, for a decade. And the concept of trade secrets, I believe, is also legal. And when it involves public health and safety, I would argue it is immoral. <coughs> so what does truth and reconciliation mean? It means to grant immunity against punitive damages in exchange for providing confidentially protected evidence on toxic hazards, funding worker and community recovery and repair through fees on cancer-causing industries, and supporting systematic surveillance of worker and community health. That is what is needed to heal Libby, Montana. That is what is needed to heal many places on this earth. Um, I, I think I will, um, I know many of you want to hear more about, about cell phones, but I think in the interest of time, I'm going to um, stop and leave you with just this statue, which uh, can be found in Dachau. It's life size. And on it is written, the slogan, we honor the dead to warn the living. And that's what my work does. I tell the stories of my parents, of many others, whose lives were cut short or worsened because of where they grew up, where they worked, how they lived. And I think we now have an opportunity and I think a moral obligation to honor those who've passed on and to warn the living so that we can leave our children a healthier and more sustainable world. And I'll be happy to talk more about the cell phone issue in our question and answer session. Georgia? Yeah, go ahead and, and take a few minutes to... I can? All right, well, let me do, all right, let me do that. Let me give, me give you a second here then. I never thought I'd write a book about cell phones. You know, you have to understand the secret history of the war on cancer I worked on for 20 years because uh, it wasn't possible to write it when I first wanted to. My first title for the secret history of the war on cancer was Cancer Wars, like Star Wars. And uh, unfortunately, that was in the Reagan-Bush era, and I was advised by my boss at the time that that was a great title, and if I wanted to do that, I'd have to get a job someplace else. So I didn't. Uh, but this book... At the time I started to look into the issue of cell phones, I owned three of them. And I thought there couldn't possibly be a problem with cell phones because after all, I was smart and if there was a problem, I'd know it. I worked at the US National Academy of Sciences. I was a professor of epidemiology at the Cancer Institute, founding director of a bunch of things with a bunch of awards. And after all, I like my cell phones, all three of them. <laughs> well, um, it turned out 
I, as I think I've made clear in my remarks about other things, scientists are human. We follow fads and fashions. And sometimes what we want to believe turns out to be wrong, but the burden of accepting that what we think is wrong is very, very steep, particularly when you've got a highly profitable industry. And in this case, one that is very closely tied with environmental groups, as well as with government on all sides. So I began to look into the issue, and the first thing I found was that the British government in the year 2000 had issued a report chaired by Sir William Stewart, who was the president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. I thought, well, you know, that was a little strange, but the British are a little eccentric. And their report said children should not use cell phones. That was in 2000. And I thought, well, this is strange. Why didn't I know that? You know, there is a kind of arrogance of science, and it's particularly, I think, American scientists. And then I looked into what Sir William Stewart's own background was. I recently met with people who work with him in England. He'd been the head of the British Chemical Biological Weapons Program and Margaret Thatcher's chief science advisor. So I thought, hmm. I began to look further, and I found that the Israelis, which is a country that lives and dies by radar, had issued warnings about cell phones on their websites. And the Finns, that are also quite sophisticated in developing and selling cell phone technology, the Finnish Nuclear Regulatory Authority, had also issued warnings about cell phones. And so I began to realize I didn't know what I was talking about when it came to cell phones and my assumption that they had to be safe. I wanted to believe they were safe. I thought I was really cool because I could keep up with my graduate students and all the new apps. I liked being able to track down my kids. And it was really, I remember the first time we got a cell phone in our family was when our son was driving. He was 17 and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. And my husband and I were sitting there like this, thinking, oh my gosh, what if, if we had a cell phone? Cell phones have changed our lives for the better. But we've got to be smarter about how we use them. And I've learned there's a lot of information about their dangers. And that's what the book tells you. Now, I'm going to jump right into this because I want to ask, how many people have seen the, the movie Thank You for Smoking? Oh, good. The rest of you, it's actually a, a fun, dark comedy. And it's about a guy whose tough job is to get people to smoke. So for social support, he meets once a week with his friends who are selling guns and alcohol. And they commiserate on the difficulties they have. They call themselves the Mod Squad for Merchants of Death. And by the end of the movie, they have a new recruit to the cause. And the new recruit are a bunch of guys in suits looking a little uncomfortable. And off camera, a voice says, well, does it cause cancer? Do cell phones cause cancer? And they're all speaking over one another and saying, well, we're not sure. We don't know. And he says, <clears throat> gentlemen, practice these words in front of the mirror. Although we are constantly exploring the subject, currently there is no direct evidence that links cell phone usage to brain cancer. Have you heard that one? Well, in fact, the types of evidence on cell phones and health are like the types of evidence I showed you before. Experimental work in toxicology, epidemiologic studies, and exposure modeling. I want to show you a little bit, very quickly, of all of that. When the atom bombs dropped in Japan, 
There was no increase in brain tumors in survivors, none, until 40 years later. It took 40 years before a statistically significant number of people had died of brain cancer, 40 years. Most epidemiologic studies do not find any increase in brain cancer. Most studies define a user of a cell phone as someone who makes one call a week, one call a week for six months. <laughs> Most studies have studied people who've used a cell phone for five years or less. But all of the studies that have been well-designed that study people who've used cell phones for 10 years find a doubled risk or more. If you study smokers, after 10 years, you do not find an increased risk. 10 years of heavy use of cell phone radiation. Most people in this room have not been using a cell phone heavily for 10 years. Anybody? 10 years? Heavy use? Right. All of these data come from Scandinavia and Israel, Finland, countries where people have been using cell phones longer. This is research that has been shown in seven different countries. Sperm samples taken from healthy young men, split into two. One sample gets exposed to cell phone radiation, and one does not. Here's the unexposed sample. This is the sperm count. Sperm will die naturally. The sperm that are exposed to cell phone radiation, just like that from your cell phone that sits in most men's pockets today, those sperm die three times faster three times faster. And this is a marker of damage to the DNA of those sperm. DNA from the sperm of men exposed to cell phone radiation develops four times more evidence of damage on that sperm. And this is not one study. This is a study by Sir John Aitken, a Cambridge University trained biologist who directs a national center for research in Australia. This is research like this has been done by Ashok Agawal, the director of the Cleveland Clinic's specialty clinic on male reproductive health problems. Similar studies have been developed in Turkey and in Greece. Sperm count is affected by cell phone radiation. Cell phone warnings now tell users, do not keep the phone in your pocket. You will exceed the FCC exposure guidelines. How many of you knew that? How many of you knew that there were warnings in cell phones that say, don't keep it in your pocket? Where do most of the men in this room keep their cell phone? Where do most of the women keep their cell phone, right? This, uh, these pictures show you evidence of what's called the comet assay. This is, you want your DNA to be intact. That's indicated here. This is what happens with x-rays. This is what happens with cell phone radiation. Damage to DNA. Now, let me tell you something. Your DNA gets damaged every day by sunlight, by oxygen, by life. And when you're healthy and well-nutritioned and connected to what is holy or whatever you believe in, you live longer and better, and your damaged DNA gets repaired. Damage to DNA gets repaired. That's the exciting news in cancer research today. That's why nutrition is so important. So damage to DNA doesn't mean you're doomed. And right now, you can take your cell phones out of your pockets, and whatever damage you may have done to your DNA can get repaired. That's the message. This is not doom and gloom. You can repair this damage. And that's what keeps us all going. 
But these are some of the data now that have come from Israel, where they were the world's largest users of cell phones until the government started to issue warnings, and now we are the largest users of cell phones. And many adults have more than one phone. This is the parotid gland tumor, right where the cell, right where the cell phone sits. The Israelis have seen a dramatic rise in this tumor. It's a very rare tumor, very, very rare tumor. And between 1970 and 2006, there was an increase of these tumors. And one in five cases of malignant parotid gland tumors in Israel is reported to have occurred since 2002 in people under the age of 20. And they're not chewing tobacco. The Israeli Dental Association has warned about the use of cell phones in the young because of this unusual tumor. We can debate it. Perhaps they're just getting better at finding it. But one in five cases since 2002 is under the age of 20. I'm getting reports from physicians of young women who keep cell phones in their bras. Anybody know people who do that? Bad idea. The breast is fluid and fat. It absorbs directly the radiation from the microwave radio that is a cell phone. A cell phone is a two-way microwave radio. It should not be held directly on the body. The president's cancer panel, President Bush's cancer panel that I testified to, issued a report warning about the escalating use of these devices, especially by the young and the need to understand what all of these different devices are doing to our brains and bodies. The warning was issued May 6, 2010. I haven't seen any major national discussion of it. That's why I'm delighted to be here to talk with you about it today. Here's what's happening in France. The French government has passed a law banning the advertising to children of cell phones, banning the design of phones to be used by toddlers, Handsets must be sold with all phones, and there's an official advertising campaign. This is what it looks like in Lyon, France. Le portable avant 12 ans, say no. Portable phones before age 12, no. And the House of Deputies and the Senate Chambers law requires this ban on advertising to young children and labeling of the SAR on the phone. The SAR itself, the specific absorption rate, is a number that is deeply flawed, but it gives you some indication of the probability that you'll get higher or lower exposure. But no matter how low a SAR you may have on your phone, your phone should not be held directly next to your brain or body. No matter how low a SAR you may have on your phone, your phone should not be kept directly next to your brain or body for hours at a time. Finnish authorities have warned the Finnish Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority in Finland, they don't have a bright line between nuclear and other radiation. Microwave radiation from cell phones is treated by Finland by the same people that deal with nuclear radiation in the Finnish Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority. They say use text messages rather than calls. Use hands-free devices. Avoid talking in an area with few bars. Now, I'm marketing to five-year-olds. This is from the United States. These are the fine print warnings, just to give you the sense of the size. Reading the fine print, right? How many of you have seen the fine print warnings with your phones? Right. 
a handful. This is what the iPhone 4 says. May exceed the FCC exposure guidelines for body-worn operation when carrying the iPhone in your pocket. That's the bottom section there. All of these can be found on our website, these warnings and others. And we're posting the one for the vocera as well. All right? This is what just yesterday the um, Montana legislature is considering warnings on cell phones because of the growing toll of deaths, often of teenagers who are texting while driving, and others, and putting serious penalties in place. But just last night, I spoke to this legislator from Maine who wants to propose this warning label, warning this device emits electromagnetic radiation, exposure to which may cause brain cancer. Users should keep this device away from the head and body. The state of Maine, the state of Oregon, the state of California, uh, I believe soon Wyoming, and I hope soon Montana, will be considering whether the warnings on cell phones should not just include texting, but safe use as well. So we've started a, a campaign for safer cell phones, which I'm happy to work with everybody here on as well. We have a business campaign for businesses that agree to provide headsets to their employees and safety information, and the cards of the safety information, where are the cards? Okay, you wanna just, we can hand them out now. This tells you the simple things you can do to protect your brains, and you can volunteer to help us. We are a grassroots campaign of grandparents, moms and dads, and people who just want to see that the rest of us are protected and understand and have a right to know that a cell phone is a two-way microwave radio and that we need to be safer in how we're using these things. A Bluetooth will substantially reduce your radiation, but not if you keep the phone on your body, all right? So I leave you with this thought from the Talmud. The job is big, and we may not get it done, but we must begin it. And I really want to thank you all for being here today. Uh, sorry it ran over a bit, but I really appreciate your interest. And this is my grandson, and this is why I have a special interest in seeing that he grows up in a world where his brain and his body are more protected. Thank you all very much. It's up to you, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I will do that. Oh sure, of course. Sure, and I will show them where. I will show you now where you can download these, uh, all these things that we're handing out to you because we have uh, on our website, and all I would ask is if you do download, this is our website, and you go to downloads, and you go to safety card handout, then you can copy this and hand it out to as many people as you want, and all we ask is that you let us know that you've done it, right? Because this tells you the simple things you can do, and we want to make it available uh, as broadly as possible. And I'm happy to answer questions. Great. Right. And I will also be available to sign books um, after. All right. Terrific. So are there a few questions? The website is environmentalhealthtrust.org. Let me, let me put that up again. The question is mammograms and thermography. Okay. Okay. Thermography is the use of a technology recognizing the fact that cancer cells, tumors tend to generate more heat. Thermography can detect um, uh, tumors, but the, there is a, still research underway about how well they detect them. Because when they can detect a tumor with thermography, it may already, it, it, it tends to be larger. But 
it is certainly a very important thing, modality to use in addition to others. Uh, in 1994, I wrote an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association with Susan Love, in which we argued that mammography then had been overstudied, uh, oversold and understudied. Mammography had been oversold and understudied. We pointed out then that the United States was one of the few countries in the world to encourage screening for women in their 40s with mammograms. We warned then that if you did take women in their 40s who have no symptoms and give them annual mammography screenings, you would create more breast cancer than you would prevent. All right? In 1994, uh, we were pilloried. We were really criticized severely. Mammography is a big business. Now, the truth is, and I want to be very clear about this, if anyone is in their 40s and has a symptom, a lump, a pain in their breast, they need to be seen by a health professional. And in my opinion, the best thing a woman can do is to have a good relationship with a health professional, often a nurse practitioner, who conducts a very thorough breast exam that takes so long you wonder whether the person doing it is enjoying themselves. <laughs> a good breast exam starts like this, standing up, okay? Standing up. You have to look at the, look at the breasts, right? and bending forward, and then lying all the way back, and then going into the armpit, and all the way around the breast. Take, and it takes time, and I can't do one for myself as well, and most people can't do them for themselves as well. Blaming women for missing their tumors is not very productive. This last year, the National Ta Preventive Services Task Force reiterated recommendations that were issued in 1993 or 4, saying, Screening should not be done regularly on women in their 40s. Now, let me be very clear that you understand. Screening refers to taking women who are healthy now, who have no family history and no symptoms, and putting them through x-rays. That's what screening means. Diagnostic evaluation is always appropriate if someone has a symptom or a special history, right? So screening for women in their 40s is something that is not done in Canada, is not done in Sweden, is not done in some very sophisticated countries. That's why it's a problem. Thermography is a technology that's been around for quite some time and shows great promise, but validation of it is, is the question. And of course, it's a chicken and the egg because since such a powerful industry has sold all these machines for people to invest in mammography, we don't have really independent information on it. MRI can be very valuable too, but MRI costs a lot of money and it can't be used as a screening device. Magnetic resonance imaging. Another question. Uh, what advice can you offer healthcare workers, especially in this hospital, who are required to wear Bocera on their bodies? Um, we're working on it. I know your hospital's concerned, and for right now, I would say putting it on the arm. You know, you need angiogenesis of the development of cancer requires a lot of blood flow and circulation, right? So I look, looking at those devices, I have a question. Do those devices come with a big holster of some kind or just a small little clip? Just a small clip. Just a small clip. Um, and read the directions that come with it, which I just did yesterday. Uh, if you're not involved in lifting, I would say clipping it right onto your arm here would be better. 
and then you can talk into it like Dick Tracy. But I don't think. Well, this is this will be six inches. It doesn't have to be six inches all the time. It only has to be six inches when you're talking, and that this would do it. And then it would be away from you the rest of the time. But I think this is a quite. I know that officials at the hospital are concerned about it, and I think that there will be a solution. We'll just have to figure it out. What is the device? It is a. Looks like it's a two-way microwave radio device um, that allows people to be basically on call that a lot of people wear around their necks, right in between their breasts, which I, I think, if I read it correctly, and please, is uh, Beth here? Yeah. Okay, did you, um, did, did you see, did it, it, does, it says not to do that, doesn't it? I haven't read the hard copy yet. All right, but I believe it says not to do that, and yet many people do, and I would say if you could keep it up on this part at least, but the best part, frankly, would be here or, or here. And you can just clip it on the outside. And the worst would be right over the heart, right over the breasts. For now, and we'll, we'll work on it, right? It's up to you. Um, Dan. I just want to mention one other thing about, my name's Dan Spencer in environmental studies. But one other thing about the, the flip side of also cell phone massive use on that is the production and the health measures to workers. Some of you may have heard the National Public Radio that China is now the mass producer of this. They just built a factory for 300,000 workers. Uh, it's the largest factory in the world. Uh, the suicide rates for workers are astronomical, and the, and the, the health the hazardous work conditions producing cell phones is really difficult. So it's, cell phone use is really problematic both for the using end, but also for the production end. Well, Dan, thank you very much for that comment. Um, just to make sure you all heard that, Dan's talking about the uh, growing uh, public awareness of the dangers to cell phone work producing workers. In addition, in my book, I talk about uh, tantalum, which is the mineral that is used uh, in, in many of these devices that is kind of like a blood diamond in, in our areas of Africa with tremendous ethnic strife where rape is used as an instrument of war. So we, we need to be aware of these things. And I think, again, um, public awareness becomes the first step. Uh, in seeing that, that we make uh, the world better. And I thank you for pointing that out. The whole issue of microelectronics production, whether computers, microchips, and other things, is something that um, people, we need to, to understand that we have a moral obligation as the users, as the end users of these products. There's also growing awareness of the need for computer recycling. And I, I presume you have a program here, and people need to understand that computer trash can, can ultimately be toxic to our land as well. A couple more. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the cell phone towers. Um, well, <clears throat> I am not an expert on the tower story, all right? And I know um, that it's a great concern and growing concern to many people is the fact that the so-called the net neutrality and the, the, the 4G network and all of that is predicated on the fact that you can have a tower in everybody's bedroom. Um, and, I, and I mean that almost literally. It is against the OSHA occupational safety and health rules for a person to work on a tower if the tower is on. Okay, The tower has to be turned off. And yet it's legal for a tower to be right outside your bedroom. There's something wrong with this. Okay. I'm, so I'm not an expert on the issue of, of the towers, but I'm deeply concerned about siting policy 
and also about wireless in kindergartens and schools with young children. And again, the Israeli government has recently issued advice on those things. I'm learning, as, as are you, about these issues. And I'm focusing on cell phones because I think, quite frankly, it's very clear. When people understand that a cell phone is a two-way microwave radio, they will understand it should not be held next to the brain. The cell phone industry does not like to use the word microwave radiation. They say radio frequency energy, but that's what it is. It's microwave radiation. Microwave radiation, you know you would not want to hold that next to your brain or body. When we get the information out, when people understand this, I think we will make more progress on this issue. Yes? The circuit board manufacturing process involves uh, flame retardants. And James, I think, found out that the recycled circuit boards weighed less than new ones. And the uh, retardants were actually getting into the blood and the fat of the workers. So what can you tell us about these flame retardant chemicals? Um, <clears throat> there is a tremendous amount of interest in flame retardant chemicals. And we know that they are profoundly disruptive of um, the hormones, the endocrine system as well. Um, I think, as a society, we need to have a more informed discussion on these issues. It may well turn out, and I suspect it is the case, that we will look at cell phones as we look at cars and guns and alcohol. They have a place in our society. They can be dangerous but we need to use them in a safer way. You would never allow a person now to have put a child in the front seat of a truck without a car seat, a seat belt. You, you, children, it's against the law in most places to do that. I hope that I will live to see the time when you would never hand a working cell phone to a toddler without the same kind of reaction you would have if you saw someone driving in a car with a child without a seat belt or restraint. Cell phones save lives. They've revolutionized the world. They've revolutionized business. Microcredit for women in Africa has, has often involved giving them a cell phone. But we've got to be smarter about how we use those things. We really do. And I think the model of, of remember, when cars were first developed, there were some people who said, cars are going to kill people. Well, they do. But they also save lives. And we have to be smarter about how we use them and understand the complex chain that goes from the extraction of the minerals, the production of the material, to our ultimate use. And we have to start asking ourselves, when you're standing in the supermarket checkout line, do you really need to be checking your email? Maybe you could have a conversation with the person behind you. <laughs> right? We, yeah. Thank you so much, Deborah. All right. I want to. Dr. Davis has um, generously agreed to sign books. You heard that that will be over the noon hour. I don't think this is on. No. Yeah. Um, Hello? No. Okay. All right. I can say I, I will sign books over the noon hour, and I want to leave you with this quote from Martin Luther King. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And that's where I am on this issue right now. And 
Thank you very much.